Right, yeah, it's still morning. Um, so just just to humor y'all, because some people have been asking me, uh, the cover of my Bible. Yes, I made it myself. I was really see in seminary. There was this fad of sending your Bibles to to other countries to get them bound in in calfskin leather. That that was just the fad. I mean, seminarians have strange fads, um, and. And it was the rage, so people were just sending off their Bibles to do that. And I'm very anti-fad, so I was like, I am not doing that. They're like, you actually read this thing, you know, because like, it's the Greek and Hebrew Bible that they were doing that to. And I was like, yeah, I do. That's why I can't send it for four months to Mexico, because I would be miserable or be broke, because I would have to buy another Bible. And they said, man, you should do it. And I said, I'm not going to do that, because everyone else is doing it. So I went to Walmart. And I bought two pieces of leather, eight and a half by eleven, and I bought some leather string. Total purchase cost was like ten dollars and eighty cents, and that included California's outrageous tax, which I happily pay because we're supposed to happily pay those things. <laughs> and then I took a Leatherman and I poked holes during class. Yes, it was during class. I was in a summer class. And as we were reading the Bible, or someone else was reading out loud, because it was a Hebrew readings class, I poked holes in the leather. And the professor was like, what are you doing? He's like, <laughs> and I threaded the string and found two binder clips. And so the binder clips were free, courtesy of the seminarian's secretary. And uh, that's how I got my Bible. And p- seminary students were just like, wow, that is a great Bible cover. Where did you get that done? Walmart. <laughs> you know, I was just like, oh. <laughs> and, and at one point, there was a rumor at the seminary that I had selected the cow by which I could get this from. It was really funny. They're like, we heard that. We heard that you, you killed the cow to make your Bible. And I was like... <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's ridiculous. I don't even know how to kill a cow. You know, Cows can be scary animals, uh, by the way. So that's just fun for today. <clears throat> oh, an- another just interesting fact. Uh, Dr. Boyd and I were having another epic discussion about First and Second Samuel. He's working on a class for First Samuel. So if you want the prequel to this, you should take it whenever he offers it. I said, when, when do you think he's going to... There's a joke that he and I both carry around. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm in the process of writing this book, and um, I don't know if the book is ever going to pan out because the publisher and I don't have the best communication abilities, I guess. Like, I send him an email, and he sends me a one-word response. I'm like, what do you think about... No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> do you think this book is going to... Uh-huh. Like, what would you like me to change? Sure. It's like, <laughs> talk to me, please, talk to me. So I, I say that I'm writing a book that goes to nowhere. Because I don't, I don't even know what they want me to write the book on. They just said, please write a book based on this, like based on what you've done. <laughs> Help, you know, like, like, what specific? Well, I think that I think what you've done is helpful. <laughs> uh, well, eh, like 
<laughs> yes. So we need, we definitely need to work. So I'm saying this book might not even pan out. I hope it doesn't. It takes up a lot of my time, and uh, I could use for a lot more beneficial things. Uh, so don't. Well, I guess the publisher will never hear this recording anyway, so he he won't know this. But so I have this book that goes to nowhere. And First Samuel, I said, where are you going to fit this in your schedule, Doctor Boy? Boy goes, I don't know. You have a book that goes to nowhere? I have a class that goes to nowhere. <laughs> so in his class, I don't know when he's going to offer the class. It could be 10 years from now. Uh, but if, if that's the case, come back and take it. And Because uh, it's, it's promising to look really good. And one of the things, Boyd, I'm predominantly cynical and negative and the pessimist. Uh, I, I think I said this in a sermon once, that if the cup is ever half full, it's because it's half full of poison. That will kill you or something. Uh, but Boyd is very optimistic. I mean, he's not, yeah, he's optimistic. Let's just be honest. You might think he's terrifying, but at heart, he's just this, oh, let's look, you know, let's look at the bright sunshine kind of guy. And so he looks at biblical characters sometimes that way, except with the one exception of Joseph, whereas I look at most biblical characters, except our Lord, as quite negative individuals. But once you allow for the possibility that people in the Bible can sin and do bad things and have ulterior motives, it opens up a whole bunch of questions and, <clears throat> and interesting possibilities that have to be pursued and analyzed correctly. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today with this whole, how do you study 2 Samuel? What's its purpose? All that kind of stuff. Um, putting all that together is really holding a lot of this stuff in tension. Uh, just a quick example, because we're in, in 1 Samuel. Everyone remember Ahimelech? He's the priest. David goes to him and says, give me some bread and maybe Goliath's sword. That would be cool. And Ahimelech says, sure, here you go. And then Ahimelech dies. Remember that? Because Saul comes back later and says, why didn't you, why did you help David? And most of us read that as if Ahimelech is what? Naive, innocent, gullible. You know, here's David kind of by himself. Maybe his men are outside and Oh, you got to help me. I'm on a secret mission for the king. Okay, David, anything to help the king. But he doesn't say that. Anything to help you. Here you go. And then Saul comes. And what would you expect Ahimelech to say? Saul says, you were helping David. And what should Ahimelech say? David tricked me. Right? Wouldn't that be easy? David tricked me. Wouldn't that be the simplest thing, clearest thing to say to vindicate yourself? And remember, people have said that in the past, like Eve, the serpent deceived me. So it's not like it's impossible to say that in Hebrew or something of that nature. You just, it's, it's totally possible. You have people who say that before. And actually, we buy it. And Saul could have bought it. But Ahimelech never says that. Ahimelech never says, David tricked me. So maybe Ahimelech was part of a conspiracy against Saul. And Saul kills him. And he was helping David. And there might be some theological implications there of doing, because David is actually the real king. And Ahimelech knows that. And there might be some implications there about doing actually what is right, even when the law stipulates something different with your privilege which goes to maybe the Sabbath discussion. Remember that a little bit later? when, oh, Not a little bit. Years and years, decades, centuries later, when Jesus says David gave, you know, David, David would receive the showbread from 
the priest, even though that was their right to eat. Everyone remember that? Because that was the right thing to do to help the king. And so what is right trumps necessarily the strictures of the letter of the law. Does that make sense to everybody? There might be some implications there. I'm not saying that's the case, right? But I'm saying you have to consider it because that might deal with the textual evidence better. If Ahimelech's innocent, then he has nothing to fear. So why would he be trembling when he goes to David in the first place? Unless he knows he's guilty of treason against the wrongful king named Saul and has a lot to fear because there's this guy watching who's an Edomite. Oh, fascinating thing there. More on that actually later. Anyways, that was for free. That's like a teaser for what you're going to get in 2 Samuel, like that kind of stuff. Okay, but also a teaser for 1 Samuel, so it's two birds, one stone. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this book. And as we study possibilities, as we study um, strategy and literary uh, workings and all the politics and all the history that is involved in these texts, help us to strive, not just to have an, uh, an imaginative interpretation, but one that is faithful to the word and one that actually accurately reflects uh, what you want us to learn and understand and know. Help us this morning to see how to go about doing that and how to go about applying and correlating the book of Second Samuel with the rest of Scripture and our lives well. Uh, give us a good method so that we may be faithful to your word in the end. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. May this time be a great encouragement and a time of edification for them. May they leave here with a greater ability to grasp uh, what you have revealed to us over the centuries, over the millennia, and for centuries and millennia, eternity to come. May you receive all honor, O Lord. May our hearts love your Son and use this book and use our study of this book to honor him in the right way. In your name we pray. Amen. So, we are talking about approaches to 2 Samuel. Alright? You had an SPP on this, and you're thinking, and you asked me, when is that SPP technically due? Like 11.59 night, technically. I won't check till tomorrow morning. Okay? So you have all that you have today to turn it in. Okay? But please, for the rest of the semester, try to turn it in by when you come to class. Okay, if at all possible. Know there's some grace, but it's for your sake, right? That I'm asking you to do this. Because if you come to class unprepared, it hurts you, not me hurts you, because you'll be clueless about the discussion. You won't know what we're talking about, really. It pays to come prepared. Okay, uh, there was a John MacArthur, everyone remember John MacArthur? And he had a, he had a teacher, his name was Charles Feinberg. I think Charles Feinberg is one of my all-time heroes. I've never met him. Maybe that's why he's my hero. And, uh, but he, I think he and I would get along really well. We kind of have the same personality, uh, especially when I'm upset, because that was his personality the entire time. And you just would not show up in his class unprepared. Hutchison taught with him and was his student. And students would just skip class rather than go unprepared because they were terrified of this guy. I mean, he would, if you got something wrong, he would just ream you out for half an hour. That's the way the rabbis did it. He was 
uh, trained to be a rabbi got saved and got two doctorates. Um, that's just the way they work. I mean, his, his whole family is a bunch of geniuses. He had two sons. Both of them got two doctorates, if I remember right. And they were, teach- they were I mean, they were teaching in big name uh, seminaries, universities. Wife got a doctorate, and his daughter got a doctorate. And, yeah, I mean, it was all really smart people. Anyways, I mean, he would just ring me out and be like, how could you treat God this way? You're a threat to the kingdom, you know, like you're a dishonor and disgrace to Jesus Christ and blah, 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 for 30 minutes. And you would just, I mean, people would just leave in tears. And I'm like, I love this guy. <laughs> if I did that, I would be fired. You know? But he does that and he's beloved. He, he's responsible for, I mean, if MacArthur, MacArthur will credit a lot of his academic ability and training and ability to understand and preach the word from Feinberg. Feinberg forced him to be a good student of the word. So, uh, I don't know where I was. Oh, don't come to class unprepared. I won't do what Feinberg does, but sometimes I, I must admit I am tempted to. Varner is close, right? Sec- if you have second year Greek with that man, you come unprepared, you might be dead. Literally. He's the only professor I've ever had that threw a book at my head. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Not just any book. You think like, oh, a little pamphlet. No, a BDAG. That's like a dictionary. Okay? And it, it, I ducked. I survived. But, uh, but he was being funny there. But sometimes he's serious. Okay. We're back to the SPP. Do them on time, right? Do them by class. However, Talk to me, speak to me about what you learned from this. We're talking about the purpose of 2 Samuel. We're talking about what the commentaries or any other resource you use. So first, tell me the resource that you used, whether you liked it or not. That's the second thing. And then what did they say? All right? Any any takers? Any volunteers? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, those are the ones with the, it's a black cover with green stripes. It just helps to memorize these kind of things. And what, well, helpful or not helpful? Um, it was kind of helpful. The introduction was super detailed, and so I didn't really get what he thought about the whole book and the whole book until the very end, the last sentence. So he just talked about, like, the, the right of David and what's up David, kind of how uh, he theological things, things, you know, inspires theological things. Yeah, Kim's just nice. I mean, she's just like, oh, it's kind. Anyone else use WBC? Okay, <coughs> gentlemen who are not as nice, tell me what you thought. That was awful. Ta- awful. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. He's not getting high ratings right now. I mean, you know, we should do like an iTunes thing with this guy. You know, like rate, star him, you know, or whatever. <laughs> we, yeah, one star. <laughs> or as some people put on Amazon, they're like, I wish I could give zero stars, you know. So, I mean, maybe, maybe he could get one star. But yeah, he, if all, all you say about the, about the book is that it inspires theological themes and you don't tell me what it inspires, you could tell me that. Like, oh, yeah, of course, Second Samuel inspires theology. It's part of the Bible, you know. And then you could have written word biblical commentary. This, by the way, is a premier nerdy set to have. Not only does it have a sharp cover, uh, it has a reputation. Any, any other comments on WBC, Anderson's work? Yeah. I just kind of thought the same. It was 
Yeah, okay. So it does it does have some value when it's talking about a relationship <coughs> to the rest of the Bible. Good. Yeah. And we should give credit where credit is due, and that's good. Good to know. All right. And anyone else use a different commentary? Yeah. Yes, NIVAC, uh -huh, for short. And how did you like that? Um, well, they said, like, we're not going to deal with anything historical. Like, this is just about, like, application. And, like, nothing, like, historical or, like, background-wise. Like, don't take too long. It's just about, like, I don't know, like, I guess if y'all do something that's up, like, you know, I don't know. Like, if I would like to, I could read, like, a history sermon about that, but it's, I would think a commentary would want to tell you the things that you wouldn't know. Good. And you start to see kind of the different nuances of a, of a commentary. NIVAC, <coughs> NIV application commentary, is actually the better of the applicational commentaries, I would say. Yeah, they're going to focus on application. And you're right, it's just like a sermon in a lot of senses. It's trying to link it to your life and things like that. But there's not enough meat to like kind of go forward. They actually have sometimes good things to say, some substance. Uh, some of the NIVACs are actually some of the best commentaries I've ever read because the author, he just had this alternative agenda to tell you what the text meant, <laughs> contrary to the purpose of the, of the commentary series. And he just inserts this. For example, the book of Psalms, uh, Gerald Wilson, he actually teaches at APU, really good. I mean, he just like <laughs> puts it all in there. And you're like, hey, this is good. Why didn't anyone else say that? Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. But, the, yeah, they may lack a little bit of detail. At least they don't claim to have any. That's good. Lack of detail. <laughs> it's different if this is, I, this is the best thing since sliced bread, and you're like, dude, it's just the slice, no bread. <laughs> uh, okay, so, yeah, might not be the most helpful because of that. It, it might have some decent applications, but this does raise some questions. How can you have, how do you know that the applications are legitimate if you haven't really gone through the hard work of making sure that the text is moving you in that direction? Does that make sense? That that could be a problem. Yeah, so good, good comments here. Any more? Or is that it? Yeah. You don't have to have more. I'm not pressuring you. Yeah, that's actually a really poignant and excellent insight into the book of 2 Samuel. Remember how I said a little bit that 2 Samuel points the way to a divine Messiah, why you need a divine Messiah? <coughs> Hear that application. When you have a monarchy as opposed to a theocracy, you will never fulfill the Davidic covenant. You'll never have what it should have been. And that already starts to hedge you saying, well then, then the king has to be God, right? The king has to be God. And if the Davidic king has to be God, then 
the Messiah has to be who? God. Start to, do you see the strategy there? I mean, this is general, this is broad, but we're going to have to draw it from the text. Okay, so yeah, that's a good, that's a good thing. Divine, I'll just jump, to the, jump the gun a little bit and say, yeah, divine Messiah. Yeah, that's good. Any other, any other resources? Yeah. Yes, yes, in Nisbet. Yeah, it's in the Nisbet series, New International Studies of Biblical Theology. Stephen Dempster. Yeah, I didn't even put that on reserve. I should have, but that's okay. It's Stephen, not Stephanie, okay? Uh, good or bad? Excellent. Excellent, of course. Yeah, that's good. Stephen Dempster's uh, book in the Nisbet series is a great cover. The, the cover looks ugly, frankly. But that's okay, because the content is golden. And <clears throat> if you want to spend 16 hours reading something, that's worth reading. Okay? That's worth reading. I, I recommend it. That and The Greatness of the Kingdom, if, you had, if I had to have two books. Those two books, I, you could spend some significant time on, and it's good stuff. Uh, yeah, The Greatness of the Kingdom by Alva J. McLean. Uh-huh. Henry Smith. Okay, yep. Yep. Yep, anti-Saul bias is what we might call it. And that's really a political statement, isn't it? It's not necessarily theological. It's more political in the sense of this person has an agenda to be against Saul, so I want to support David. And really, the traditional uh, trajectory of how commentaries work, including the International Critical Commentary, Smith is in the green. Is that green book? Yep. Uh, yeah, that's you know you, that's how they're going to go because they have a very historicity, historical slash political bent on how to read Samuel. Yeah, so good, but unity absolutely of First and Second Samuel absolutely. Uh, any other comments? Yeah. I didn't end up using it, but I read that one too, and his like main point was that Second Samuel's uh, treatise on power more or less political power, which I thought was pretty. Yes, that's right. It's a uh, he thought, once again, the traditional outlook is this is a polemic, a polemic on who, ought, who has the right to have the throne, power, who's the legitimate king, politics, all that kind of stuff. That's how it has traditionally been viewed by the nerdy world. I mean, do people preach that from pulpits? Like, look, David isn't supposed to be a real king. No, no, no one says that. But in the nerd world, yes, you know, it is a political polemic. Yeah. And any other ones? Yeah. I used, um, I can't remember the whole name. It was like Joyce C. Baldwin. Uh huh. Yeah. It was, it was pretty good. It was a commentary on both books. So um, the introduction dealt with Baldwin. But then she got into like some of the main passages of each one. And of course, it was 2 Samuel 7. She said that's kind of the 
the focal point. Yep. The main focal point is that the government's coming from a, a theocracy to a monarchy. So then she, she tied that in with um, Christ being the ultimate king through throughout even the disintegration of the kingdom after David and so on and so forth. So it was cool just because it was it was really like a broad overlook of the whole switch from from David all the way to Christ. Yeah. She she is a good commentator, commentator. She might not have as much detail as the rest, but she definitely has this, a good evangelical bent. Uh, the whole Tyndale Old Testament commentary series, series, as well as Tyndale New Testament commentary series, has, is nice in the sense that they're all relatively conservative, and they're all kind of more where we're at. They're not like crazy. Well, he's not totally crazy. He, he might be almost crazy. And... Um, and, and so it's good. It's like you got a friend in your camp. The only difficulty is not as much detail as you... You wish they would just say more, right? But they can't because the volume is like this thin. And it's all it's advertised to be Jabez-sized, even before Jabez ever existed. So you guys know what I'm talking about, Jabez-sized, prayer Jabez-sized? Okay. It's, it's actually a real size, that publishers say, because uh, it sells well. But that compact size really gets it sometimes. But yeah, the the fall of a of a monarchy and how that moves forward to Messiah, very, very important in Second Samuel. There's a theological agenda here. There's a theological agenda, and that's important. Okay? Yeah? Uh, the one that I picked out, I just let the librarian pick out for me. Oh, good. He was like, hey, this one's a liberal, you want to check it out? I'm like, well, I'm a Republican, but I read it. And uh, <laughs> so... If anything, it made me doubt the text a little bit. They were like, well, the Masoretic text doesn't match the double XL version or the XLL. Yeah, I gotcha. So they said it didn't match. And I'm like, oh, so this one's trying to make me doubt what they write the whole commentary about. So I just, uh, I don't know. I was kind of confused because usually they put that kind of stuff in the apologetics one. Yeah. But they didn't. So I was... Yeah, that's a great question. Does everyone understand this question? It is that Second Samuel doesn't match the LXX, um, the Septuagint. Okay, and you know, you you did point on the hypocrisy. If it doesn't match, and it's and it's not worth writing about, then why are you writing on it? <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, hello. <laughs> it isn't the word of God, and we shouldn't care about it. Then why are you writing on it? Uh, so there is a there is a tension there of self contradiction. Nonetheless, <coughs> the the differences between Second uh, Samuel and LXX, yeah, there are some. I will admit, but keep this in mind. Uh, or excuse me, the difference between Masoretic text and Septuagint. Sorry, I think I said Septuagint and LXX. Uh, but the difference between the Hebrew and the Greek. Well, you expect that because the LXX isn't inspired. It's a translation. There's differences between your English Bible and the way it translates the Hebrew too, and we don't go crazy. You know, we don't we don't think, oh no, my English is not my English Bible is not a Bible anymore. You know, we just start burning them or something. You don't do that. There are differences because it's a tra- for one, it's a translation, and sometimes, as we know. Or is there a breadth of different kinds of translations in English? Do you have some that are more rigid to the original languages? Yes. But do you have something like NIV 
or even more left to that, I guess, for lack of a better term, that are a little freer with the text and try to explain the text and give a little more interpretive definition. Yeah, are they still considered translations? Yes. And just because there's differences between the NIV and the original text because of certain interpretive translational issues, does that mean that the Bible stops being the Bible? Not really. And, and so the liberal is trying to pull a little bit of a false card here, and that's probably why it's not in the Apologetic Study Bible, because <laughs> it's not really an issue. Uh, that would be like, that is exactly when somebody comes up to you and says, my translation is different than his translation. What are we going to do? Nothing. It's fine. So what? That's the nature of a translation. Every translation has to be 70% different than the other translation, otherwise you're plagiarizing. See the problem? So, I mean, you have, I mean every translation has to be different. And you got I mean, you got to really milk this thing because there's a lot of thes that have to be there. You know, and stuff. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to be different. You know, you can't be different. You can't start being like, and you can't just start taking out all conjunctions to be different. God made earth, sky, first day. You know, something like you can't do that. Otherwise, you don't have a real thing. They do it for everything, actually. Yeah, it, it's standard trick until until some until somebody comes along and says. It's a translation, man. They're like, shh, don't say anything. And, and, you know, I used to joke around when I taught in seminary that the reason you have so much homework in seminary is because the liberals. And they raise up all these red herrings that don't make any sense. And you have to deal with them. You know, write about it. So it's like, okay, write about why this, is, this problem, although it's not a real problem, has a solution. And you're like, people are like, I hate seminary, you know. <laughs> no, you hate liberals and sin. That's what you hate, see? Good. Without, without the fall, there would be no liberals. So, it's a fact. So then now you hate sin all the Oh, I hate, you know, and then they're like, oh, I hate sin, I hate sin. See, sanctify. Uh, uh, you know, that's just, that's just life, you know? And yeah, your question's legitimate. Why do they, do they, don't, they don't just single out one book. They, you'll read this in every single book, that our Old Testament particularly. And you just think, this is annoying. Yeah, that's what I want you to see. I want you to see that some things in the commentary aren't worth reading. At least if you're trying to prepare a message for the church. Now, if you're a nerd in the nerd world and you have to like give a speech or something and you don't read that, you'll be in trouble. Because everyone will be like, well, what are you going to do with the Septuagint and the MT? And, you're, and you can't go up there in the nerd world and say, oh, I don't really care. And you shouldn't either. You know, because it doesn't make any sense. If you do that, then your career is over. Uh, you have to say, oh, well, look at, well, let's, let's, let's think about linguistic differences and translational philosophy and, you know, you know, look at all these manuscripts and then, oh, wow, yeah, you know your stuff about nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone claps and then you sit down, you know, and then you can actually tell what you're supposed to say. Uh, it's just the way it is. I have friends who are in doctoral programs and all the universities. This friend of mine likes to fight. That's why he went to a liberal university. He just likes to fight people. Not physically, but in words. He's just that I don't like to do that. I'm just like, you know, can't we? I don't want to get along with people that don't get along with me. And uh, No, I'm just joking. But, <laughs> uh, but he just loves to fight. And so the prof is like, my goal in this class is for you to hate Paul by the end of the class. That's my agenda. He's like, you'll never break me. You know, it's like, that's, that's, I mean, he just loves to fight. And so he... 
every paper would, that was 20 pages, he had to write 40 pages because he had to spend 20 pages with a standard introduction about why the book was written by Paul mm-hmm. as opposed to a Paul imposter or something. And he'd just have a standard one that he copy and paste in. So the professor would read the rest of his paper. It's just the way, it's just the way you have to do things in the academy. Uh, you're shielded a lot from that here at Masters. Right? But I want you to see that. I want you to see what, what you're up against sometimes. Right? And what people are going to ask you. Because they don't really ask us from the Masters College or those who agree with us onto uh, CNN, PBS, the History Channel, A&E. They ask the crazies. Why? Because they make lots of money, they publish lots of books, and they're the smart people. Because why? Because they said so. <laughs> and if you don't deal with this, then you're a dumb person. Even if, even if what they're doing is dumb, it doesn't matter. You're dumb. It's just a name-calling game. And so somebody watches it on PBS and says, whoa, what's, this, what's up with this with the Septuagint Hebrew thing? You, just, you have to be able to respond to them and explain to them, oh, don't worry. They're crazy. You know, I read this stuff. They're crazy. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, but they're smart people. It doesn't matter. You know, they're crazy. You can be smart and crazy. That's like in every single movie you've seen. So, you know, so don't worry about it. You know, that, so this is, that was a really good question, and we spent a lot of time on that question. So any other, any other comments up here? Yes, ma'am. Sure. Uh huh. Yeah. And I liked it because it was, uh, it actually, well, I couldn't find the introduction, but it was the first thing that we did the introduction because the whole thing was right. under one book. That's right. I didn't know that before. The other thing was it said the purpose of Samuel in general was to talk about the sovereignty of God amidst other man's sin or Israel's sin. Hmm. I, I saw that in Second Samuel because, you know, David did a census and then, or David, or David was able to conquer the whole thing. Then he was unfaithful with Bathsheba, or yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, so there's all these ups and downs in life, and then he had his child die, but then Solomon, so that he could fulfill his covenant. Yeah. And um, all of, you know, and there's Beacon Bible Commentary. That's a little different. Uh, but all of those commentaries are helpful, right? Because they actually do comment on the text. That is nice. Uh, you, you'll start to notice in some commentaries, people ask you sometimes, why are there so many commentaries? Because there's so many issues outside of the Bible that people like to talk about that, <laughs> that relate to Second Samuel in name only. Do you see what I'm saying? But when you talk about the text itself, there's not, I mean, there is a lot to say, don't get me wrong, but not a lot of people are saying it. And so that can already alleviate some of the tensions you have in church. People say, man, there's no way I can know the Bible. There's so many interpretations. Look at all these commentaries written. And all you have to say is just read one or two and tell me, tell me what they actually talk about the text. You know, and you start to read, they're like, oh, they're talking about like this German dude over here and this French guy over here and this a German lady over there and, and this German school over there and all of this German stuff over there and then maybe one Finnish person and, uh, <clears throat> and an American, token American, uh, you know, who studied under the Germans. It always has to be like that. And, uh, and, and you're just like, what about Second Samuel? And they're like, 
What do you mean? This is Second Samuel. No, you're talking about all these people and what they said. Yeah, related to second, related to this issue, which relates to another issue about Second Samuel. You're like, oh no, you know, like that's not, you're going to learn in this class what's helpful to you and what's not, right? So when somebody comes up to you and says, "Tell me a good commentary," you're like, "This one answered like 99% of my questions." You should take it, right? Be effective that way. Don't say, "Well, you could check out all these," and then. In the end, this one won't be helpful, that one won't be helpful, and this one's limitedly helpful, and that one doesn't have the detail. You want the one commentary that can rule them all kind of deal. So, <clears throat> yeah, you have problems here, okay? Uh, and BBC and BKC, they're good introductory ones, for sure, and there is a definite emphasis on the fact that God is the true king, capital K-I-N-G. You'll see me write this all the time in this class. You have king, and you have king. And the tensions between the two are everything in the book of 2 Samuel. Okay. More, any more comments? Any more resources used? Anybody? Okay, here's, here's what you do for your next SPP. It's not due yet, I don't think. But, but here's your strategy. Switch a commentary, okay? So even though you say, hey, I already know this one's awful. Why would I ever want to read it? Try. Okay, it's not food, so it's not going to taste bad anyway. Just try. See for yourself, right? Maybe he's awful in the introduction, but maybe he won't be as awful in the first chapter or in the next SPP. Does that make sense to everybody? Try. Switch around. Get a feel. Don't go with just one every single time. Switch it up. Does that make sense? Otherwise, you're going to be stuck. What, I mean, if you go with this guy and he's awful all the way through, then you haven't learned anything. Does that make sense? Go switch it up. Look at something else. You know, go talk to the librarian and say, uh, what else is on that shelf? I've already done this one, this one, and this one. And he says, oh, try this one. Does that make sense to everybody? Get into that library. Uh, John Stone has just been such a great friend to me, a great brother in the Lord, right? I mean, you need to be in that library. You need to be interacting with him. Uh, as much as he has time, I know he's really busy. And I know it's like a war zone in there. But get into that library. You're, it's a really important place for your education. You may never have as good of a library as that ever again in your life. So take advantage of it, right? For me, I mean, I, every day I can have that library. Uh, but for you, you might not. So take advantage of it. Go in there. Get those books. Look things up. Find what's good. Write it down. Um, <coughs> I used to, when I, was, when I was first coming into college and seminary, somebody had suggested to me that you start, you can't buy a library when you're in college. You're already, you come to college usually with negative money, right? It's like, I'm not broke, I'm negative, you know? Like, I'm so poor, people, I, I don't even own this shirt, you know? I mean, like, I owe it to somebody. <laughs> you know, if they came in, they would take everything and me and more. Uh, so you can't buy things now. I understand that. Write things down, right? Get the best library you can because you know what it is so that you have the resources in the future. And you say, well, I'm not going to be the Bible scholar. Well, get a library that fits you because you're going to always be studying the Bible, right? No matter what you are. I mean, who you are or what you be. You know what I mean. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah. Yeah, that's very helpful. And so look through that. 
but test him. Because here, here's a secret, and I might have to take this out of recording. He didn't write everything. He wrote a lot of it, but some of us wrote things too. And so some of us are not as smart as Jim Roscoe. You get what I'm saying? So like, <laughs> dude on computer, it's 8 a.m., it's due at 8.15. Oh, this is, this is a terrible commentary. And it's like, uh, it's like one of the best things since, you know, since the Bible. And you know, you're just like, oh no, what did you do? Well, I'll tell you exactly what happened. And Roscoe's like, well, I thought this was really good, but, oh, well, maybe I'm mistaken. He's a humble man, and he just inserts it in, you're just like, no, no, no. <laughs> good website to go to, bestcommentaries.com. It's, uh, that's like iTunes, or, you know, whatever. It's an iTunes of commentaries. You don't get to read them on there, but you get to see their ratings. And usually their ratings are pretty good. You have pretty good people interacting with those kinds of things. And you could actually contribute. You could become a member. It's free. And you just rate things too. Like, this was helpful, this wasn't. And you're helping a whole bunch of people who go on there. Okay, DA Carson. And they have a bunch of lists. They have Ross Cup's list, DA Carson's list, a whole bunch of people's lists of good commentaries. Okay? Any questions about this? This makes sense to everybody? Let's talk, let's synthesize some of this uh, information uh, because it's it's good to know, yeah, like, okay, we have an anti-polemic here, that's traditional, liberals want to do X, Y, and Z. There is some theology here. I noticed none of you checked out, like, Robert Alter's um, analysis or Ber uh, Adele Berlin's analysis of, um, of Second Samuel. It's not a sin, right? There's no sin in this. It's just those guys analyze things from a more literary standpoint, which we need to address as well. But go to page, I don't know what page we're on. Page two or something, something like that. It, it's the page that has approaches to Second Samuel. See that page? Yours isn't filled in, obviously. Approaches to Second Samuel. So <clears throat> here we are. Historical. This is the traditional approach. Everyone see where I am at? Okay, historical. This is the traditional approach. This approach analyzes the event that the text describes. This, this uh, viewpoint analyzes the event the text describes. It is the standard way that commentaries deal with 2 Samuel, is to understand the event. They just try to tell you what happened. You will see this all the time in most evangelical commentaries. They're not really talking, they're just telling you basically what the text says in the sense of, here's what happens. That's the question that history is dealing with. Equally in history, you're dealing with politics, geography, military developments. Okay? And the way that people, you know, like, well, when you look at an event, how does that, how do they link that to theology or devotions? Uh, you either have to do a very big picture analysis, right? So that's when Baldwin and others are excellent, is that they see the whole book, and they see a bunch of events strung together, and then they know where everything is going. Are you with me? But what, what happens in the individual event, right? That, think about preaching. That preaches well. That really can inspire people when you deal with First and Second Samuel as a whole book. But then what are you going to do when you have to deal with chapter 1? Does that make sense? 
what are you going to do then? You're going to, you can't just keep saying the same thing over and over and over again. You should emphasize the big picture, but how, does, how do the individual parts contribute to the whole? That's where people have problems. Big, big problems. Because all you're looking at is an event. Uh, there, is, there is a diagram that you should probably be aware of. You have event, text, author, reader. You see, is the text the pure event? Not necessarily, right? Uh, the text is a particular interpretation and representation of an event. Could it be accurate? Absolutely, absolutely. But is it just the event itself? No. Um, let me just use a very practical example. Uh, you know, let's talk about John MacArthur. And you write a biography of John MacArthur. John MacArthur's wife writes a biography of John MacArthur. And uh, Phil Johnson, everyone know who Phil Johnson is? He writes a biography of John MacArthur. Are they all going to say the same thing? Okay, let's say those three people that I just named, you got invited to John MacArthur's birthday party. I don't even know if he celebrates birthdays, but let's just assume he does. And he has a good cheeseburger there, and you wanted that cheeseburger, so you go. I know he likes cheeseburgers. I heard it once in a Q&A. So uh, he likes one in a restaurant in New Mexico. That's what he said. Um, but he, uh, you go to the birthday party. Are you going to write about his birthday the same way? Could all three of you be right, though, accurate to what happened? Sure. But does it mean it's always going to be worded, looked at, perceived, viewed in the same way? No. A text that you write might be an accurate reflection of the event, so it's absolutely historical. And if you were back in the days of Samuel, or John MacArthur's birthday party, you went in a time machine, it would be exactly the way the person said it to be. But it has a certain slant, and it's intentional, right? Because John MacArthur's wife is not writing from a student's perspective with students' kind of questions. She's writing from a wife's perspective. Does this make sense? And Phil Johnson is writing maybe, I don't know what, from a friend's perspective. And you're just writing because it's so cool to be at John MacArthur's birthday party and you're the only person there that you know. Um, <laughs> and you're just like, oh, awesome. I'm here. And it's, this is so incredible. You're writing from all different perspectives. And they're all accurate. Do you see the danger of just trying to isolate an event? You see the author writes a employs an event in a text to move the reader to a certain direction. Is it important to understand the event? Yes. But if, if all you do as a reader is go this way, you're going what? Backwards. Do you see that? You're going totally backwards. If that's where you end up with, and that's your interpretation of the text, you've just moved backwards, not forwards. And that's what we typically do. That's what we typically do in interpreting narratives. We move backwards. All we understand in the end is what happens. And then we kind of make this uh, imaginary leap out of nowhere to some theological or uh, moral truth. You know, that's what we do. And how do we get there? I have no idea. 
We just made it up. See that? But if the author is taking the event through a text and trying to move you through his description, then we're on to something. Uh, a good sermon that is should be like the paradigm of how you orchestrate all this is MacArthur's sermon on the prodigal son, Luke 15. You should listen to it because it's just, I mean, there's no English word to describe it. I keep on, you know, it's like maspik in Hebrew or mitsuyan. It's just so pristine, I think, in, in the sense of how, uh, how it works, okay? And he really shows you, yeah, you have to understand what Jesus is talking about in the events of the prodigal son. Yeah, he tries to pull that out, but he also shows you how Jesus, the ultimate storyteller, uses that to make an impact on the audience. It's, it's just beautiful. So if you have a moment in your dorms to listen to this art of understanding a narrative, Luke 15, John MacArthur. And I don't just say that because he's the president, okay? I say that because it's true. I listen to a lot of sermons on narratives, and a lot of them are terrible. <coughs> that one was good. I've listened, I think I listened to it how many times? When my son was born, and I was in the hospital traveling back and forth in Israel, I think I listened to it five times in like three days. And then at least once or twice a semester after that. So I listened to it a lot. Okay. Polemic, political, letter B, letter B. The question is, in this diagram, so what is the author doing with the event in a text? What is he, what is he trying to show with the camera angle, or for lack of a better term, manipulation of the event in his record? Traditionally, it has been argued that 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, is a polemic. It's propaganda. Let's just put it bluntly. It's propaganda that David and those who are pro-David created to prove the legitimacy of his reign. To prove the legitimacy of his reign. So it shows David as a nice guy in 2 Samuel chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and that he really cares about Saul, and he's so sad that Saul died, and he didn't want Abner to die purely for political gain purely to show that he was not a conspirator. He totally had, he was an innocent man, full of integrity, all these kinds of things, okay? Kind of sheds a weird light on David, if you think about it, because David is doing all this for what? For show. Yeah. I mean, for, for, to, for power. He's not doing this out of the integrity of his heart. He's doing this for totally different reasons. He doesn't necessarily mean this. This is just a facade. Does this make sense to everybody? This is the traditional reading of 2 Samuel from the liberal perspective. And put, making a theological connection with this, you don't make theological connections with this, right? That would just be inherently anticlimactic. It's like, what theology are you going to get from a lying slumbag who pretends to be sad over his best friend's death, who was never his best friend because he hated the man's guts because he only wanted the throne? <laughs> and I'm only writing this all to prove to you that David wasn't a slumbag, even though I imply that he is by writing this. It's like, take that home with you and love the Lord, you know? <laughs> and, the, and this is the one that God chose. It's like, doesn't that give you a warm feeling? No. Yeah, 
um, we have some problems here, right? We have some problems here. Uh, do evangelicals accept this view? Sometimes. Sometimes they'll mention, oh yeah, maybe David's doing something for a political end here. Or maybe there's some kind of agenda here. It's true. That's the political bent. Literary, letter C. Letter C. Um, and like I mentioned in your notes, characterization, plot, uh, background, foreground, etc. There's just a lot of things happening in the story. And there's, maybe, maybe I could put it this way, there's a, there's a lot of texture to a text. It's not just flat. <clears throat> uh, if you watch television shows or movies, some of the best, Lost. Anyone watch Lost? Okay, yeah. Why, why do people love Lost? Because of the character development, right? You get to know those people. That's the secret of Lost. That's why I read it on Lostpedia. Because uh, then you get to know the characters really fast. Uh, I don't have to spend a lot of time. I don't know what they look like, but I do know their, their character. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. I, you see, I, I usually just read it on the go, so I read it on my phone. So I just zoom in on the text. So I don't, I don't even know that, I don't, maybe there is a picture of them. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm sure they're, I mean, if they're thorough, they should put a picture, right? Like, if you're doing a Wikipedia thing on a, a site location for the Wiki project, you better put a picture in there. Otherwise, I'll be highly disappointed and give you an F. So, uh, yeah, you don't have to put a picture of David, okay? Because we don't know what, well, we kind of know what he looks like, but not fully. By the way, even that detail, see? We just carelessly breeze over. Oh, yeah, he looks like this. Have you ever given it a lot of thought? Does the Bible tell you what Jesus looks like? Not really. Not at all. Besides the fact that maybe you could say he didn't, you know, when he was being beaten, he didn't look like a man, Isaiah 52 to 53. So why does it describe David, not Jesus? Maybe there's something there. Maybe because some of his power comes from his what? External appearance. Who, does, who actually gets described more by his external appearance? Two other people. Saul and David's son, Absalom. Why? Because they're pure external. See that? There's a strategy there. It's not just like, oh, this is, Absalom's got great hair. It's like, ooh, cool. And then you just move on. <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. That's not what you do with that. Do you see? There's a strategy. It's not as if the author of First and Second Samuel is just like, well, got to throw in some human interest. No. And well, we're just going to do it. You know, I got to make this a bestseller. You know, he's not interested in that. He's inspired to actually draw your attention to certain details and remove your attention from other details so that there's a development going on. It's not cardboard. It's not flat. Narratives develop. There's a strategy involved. There's a, there's a scheming, in a sense, in a good sense, within these books. And there's thereby an inherent connection to theology and devotion. Already, you start to see a lesson forming with the characterization of Absalom. If everything is just based on externals, you are doomed to what? Fail. And if all you're looking at is externals, you're equally what? 
totally mistaken and you will choose the wrong king every single time. And there's even a, even a more kind of like a whoa application when you see it in the light of the Gospels. Jesus was never described. Why? Because all you care about in the Gospels is not what Jesus looks like, but what? Who he is. And doesn't that bring out the force and the forcefulness of what is happening in books like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Of course. Because I'm not interested in what he looks like. I'm interested that he has the zeal, like in John, for God that only a true Davidic king and only God himself could have for himself. And I'm not interested in what, he, what his appearance is. I'm interested in the fact that he possesses, at a young age, wisdom that surpasses anybody else's wisdom, like in Luke. See that? That's what is going on. But you miss that if you don't pick up on the literary structure and you don't read Second Samuel <coughs> carefully. Everyone with me? Good. So we have to focus on that. And that's, a, that's an explosive world. And you can go out of control with literary stuff. I mean, <clears throat> I mean I, I, I've read stuff that you would just not believe. Like You're just like, that is crazy. I don't think that's true. And of course it's not true because it contradicts what the text says. There's limits here. Like, uh, you know, um, David... Oh, let me think about it. David and Goliath. David conspired with Goliath so that Goliath would die for the sake of putting David in political power and gaining an alliance with the Philistines. Uh, yeah, that, that interpretation exists. That just seems to not jive very well with the text. It's not like the Philistines are like, hey, Israel, man, we want to be your buddy, buddy. But Saul here, he's getting in our way of, of a united kingdom like Disneyland. And, uh, you know, just, we're not, you know, we'll, we'll sacrifice our giant. Just get your little guy up there and we're, we're going to make this happen. What? You know, our, uh, you know, you could literarily read Second Samuel and there might be some truth in this, but, you know, Second Samuel is a book, it's a narrative about why societies that oppress women will always fall. That's exactly what happens in every single book of the Bible. Uh, you know, Ruth. The only book, the best books of the Bible are about women who succeed because they're not oppressed. And, and 2 Samuel, you know, David multiplies wives. David sleeps with Bathsheba. He's oppressing her. He's doing all these things. And look, boom, he just falls. You know, and then what, what launches the uh, rebellion of Absalom but the rape of who? Tamar. Everyone remember that? So the oppression of women leads to the destruction of society. That's why we need a queen. You know, it's like, okay. <laughs> I mean, could there be some truth in this? Could there be something there? Could it be for a totally different reason, but a legitimate observation? Yes. We'll talk about that. Now, I'm not a feminist, okay, or something like that. But everyone remember Deuteronomy 17, the law of the king? We'll learn it again today, maybe. Um, three Gs. Don't multiply what? Got gals, gold, and giddy up. So don't multiply what? Gals? Right? And suddenly you start to see where David might have started to go seriously wrong. So is there an oppression of women ethic in uh, in uh, first and second century? Yes. Not the way the feminists are thinking, but there's a theological thing going on, yeah. 
There are natural connections with the literary to the theological. The question with the literary, and you should probably note this, is you have to have a control. Otherwise, you could read a text any single way you want for the sake of being literary. There's a lot of beauty, but it needs to have textual, authorial control. <clears throat> Letter D. You could have a purely theological reading of a text. This is actually equally common to the historical. They're almost pitted against each other. Uh, but the problem is, how do you theologically read a text? What theology? Whose theology? Your theology? My theology? Do you just read it as an example of the sovereignty of God? Well, how do you know that? And why isn't, you could do that with every single book. So why do you need all these books of the Bible to prove that? That doesn't make sense. Uh, do you read it through the label of liberation theology? The reason, the reason 1st and 2nd Samuel exists is to show you how a peasant, David, can become the mighty king. And it's the story of David removing the oppression of other nations and of, of Saul, the typical king, and being a king that oppresses no more. He, you know, liberation theology. Or racial theology. What, what David got in trouble was when he, um, he started being racist. Uh, or social theology. I mean, how, how do you... Socialist theology. Marxist theology. Like, the reason David went wrong is because he's king and we need socialism. Uh, how do you know which theology to read? Does that make sense? Where did you get that from? Uh, and of course, there's a lot of connection with theology and with a theological reading, but there is no methodological ground. There, you could be guilty of eisegesis. We read 2 Samuel this way when we sometimes do what's called typology. Oh, well, David's the type of Christ, so we read this about David and we automatically think that uh, that somehow points us to Jesus. Does that make sense to everybody? How do you know that? How do you know that? Or how do you know you're just not making that up? Are you with me? Because you could be just making that up off the top of your head. You just see a connection and you just do it. It reminds me of how I diagnose or categorize Sunday school kids. You know, because in Sunday school, craft time, what do you do? You play connect the dots, right? And those dots have numbers on them. And the little girl, stereotypically speaking, she always connects the dots, right? And so you get Abraham. Right? And he has a big smile on his face. And then you have the little other kid, and he, he struggles a little bit more. Right? He's not the best connector of dots. But he tries. And so Abraham kind of has a crooked smile, a lot of smudges, but at least he looks like a person, and he's Abraham. And then you have the third kid, and you, you have lots of these kids in class, especially boys. And you come over and you say, Johnny, what, 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 how did you connect the dots? And he's like, it's a tank! <laughs> and you're like, what? <laughs> you, and you're like, no, Johnny, Johnny, that, don't show mom, okay? You know, like, you know, and the tank is killing Abraham. You know, <laughs> no, that never happened, you know. You just made up the dot. I mean, he just connected the dots the way I see them. That's what I want. I want a tank, so the dots will connect to make a tank. Maybe you thought you said Abrams instead of Abraham. That would be, oh, I'm going to use that next time. And, and then the kid turns into be a genius. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, really smart people. Well, this is good, thanks. That's good. Uh, you have really smart people sometimes just see whatever they want to see. And they make it. Do you see what I'm saying? You can connect the dots any way you want. doesn't mean it's right. 
So the questions you must ask yourself is, with this whole typology issue, how do you know you connect the dots right? How do you know that text really does that? Are you with me? Got to be careful. This is about being faithful. Don't say things that God wouldn't want you to say. Isn't that pretty simple? Like, don't put words in God's mouth. That's, a, that's basically a form of lying. Typology. Be very, very careful. Uh, so how do, you, how do we kind of get a method going here? How do we solve all these issues? How do we kind of map this on here? Because really, um, when you talk about historical, you're dealing with event. And when you talk about uh, literary, you're talking about how the author, this process right here, how the author moved one thing uh, into, moved the event into the text. And when you're dealing with theology and and such, you're dealing with how the author wants to use that to move the reader. So you're dealing with this over here. So this is number one, this is number two and three, this is number four. How do you get, how do you get all of this all together? Okay, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to have an eclectic, for lack of a better term, an eclectic method. Now we're under methodological approach number four. Everyone with me? Methodological approach. We want an eclectic method. You know, back to the typology thing. Everything points to Christ. Then, with David, then what are you going to do when David sins? <laughs> uh, that points to Christ. Better not. For a lot of reasons. You know, we have to be very careful. We have to be very, very careful here. An eclectic method means we take everything and kind of try to synthesize it together. <coughs> First and foremost. You do need to understand the historical event. If you don't know really what is happening, then we can't go anywhere. Are you with me on that? If you don't know what's going on, um, we can't go anywhere. And so a lot, some of the time in class, we're, try, we're going to try to re reconstruct the entire picture of the history implied by the text. Uh, the, the most famous case in point will be David's interactions with Bathsheba and trying to reconstruct everything that's going on there. And, and it might be more than you realize. It might be more than you think of at first. And then you move from there. You can't just stay there. If you just stay there with the reconstruction, uh, then you're not doing what the author wants you to do. Then you kind of move into how the author is utilizing that. You, is there something political going on? There could be. But how is the author using that in a literary fashion? How is he, uh, what, the, what is the purpose of all these descriptions? How has he crafted the narrative? How is it, okay, he took the event, but he only took certain parts of the event and shaped them for a certain reason. Talk to me about that, okay? So we're going to layer on top of that kind of the political, literary aspects. There is a literary styling that, uh, the narrator has with his inspired hand of correlating all this information in a certain manner. You do it all the time in the movies, camera angles, things of that nature. We're going to look at the same thing. And if you really analyze all those things and understand it all together, then you move forward and you understand the theology of that particular event according to the inspired author. Does this make sense? You understand the theological significance of the event according to the 
inspired author. And that really starts to attack both immediate concerns that the immediate audience, the original audience would have, as well as other big picture concerns, okay? <coughs> including how these things relate to our Lord. Uh, and what time do we get at? 11, 12, 35? Okay, good, got time. Let's talk about typology for a second, okay? Let's talk about typology first. Oh, wait a minute. What am I supposed to get through? Oh, that's a lot of pages. Okay, uh, well, let's still talk about typology for a second. Okay? Because this is so abused, I think, sometimes. Here's the general process that um, I think sometimes we do in typology is here's preacher man, designated with P. And he sees David, designated with D. And he sees Jesus, designated with J. And he says, hey, cool. I see this. I see this. And they look the same. Therefore, he typifies Jesus this way. There is a direct connection between David and Jesus such that when I preach a text, I say, man, what David's doing now, Jesus does it again. David is predicting what Jesus does. And so the main significance, the main importance of what David is doing is just because it leads to Jesus. Does this make sense to everybody? You hear it all the time. That's the standard method. But really, the epistemological certainty and the reason that the guy is making this connection is what? I see it, therefore it is. Everyone with me? Um, it's like in geography, or in, ge you know, in algebra. It's like A, B, X, find X. Yep, right there. Yeah, that's, that's what people do. It's just like, oh, I see it, therefore it is. I found it, right there. Um, the, uh, you can't do that. That's not exegetically sound. That's not. That's just you making something up. That's you connecting that's any way you want. Okay, you can't do that. can't do that. Even if, it, even if they look similar, you can't do that. You can't jump the gun like that. I hate the term typology because of all the negative, or all the uh, baggage that it carries. But there is a way to connect David and Jesus. Okay? And here's how I might do it. And here's how I would teach it. And here's how you would need to teach it. Here's David, and he does an event. He has an event. Okay? David does something. Right? <coughs> that entirety is actually a reflection of the Davidic covenant. How God deals with David in this event, how David reacts in this event, David's sin or triumph in the event, that's all through the grid of the Davidic covenant. Does that make sense? And so this event amplifies our precise understanding of what the Davidic covenant is and how it applies and integrates into particular history. Not just a general idea, but a specific one. 
Jesus comes along later. And there is also an event. And the reason that they're parallel is not because David was predicting Jesus. It's because what? They both relate to the same covenant. They both relate to the same covenant. And you can prove that exegetically. Are you with me on this? And so when you teach this, do you say that David predicts Jesus? No. What do you teach? You say, we need to understand this so that we can understand what? Davidic covenant. And we understand this so well so that when you get here to Jesus, what happens? You actually understand the significance, real big significance, of what happens here. You understand the so what? Much better. You see, with typology, if all you understand from this is that it's, about, that it's predicting Jesus, then what you're going to read when you get to Jesus is that, oh, he fulfilled a prophecy. He fulfilled a typological scheme. So what? Well, he just fulfilled something. That's it. Are you with me? But if you read it this way, and you not now you have exegetical basis, you're not saying David predicts this. You're saying, no, David teaches us something about this. And that this, which is the Davidic covenant, leads us to understand about who Jesus is better. That answers a so what question. Let me give you an easy one. Uh, for, back to 1 Samuel. David's in the wilderness. Everyone remember that running around? Uh, and there are a lot of parallels, actually, between David's, is David's three kind of main cycles in the wilderness and Jesus' three what? Any guess? Temptations. You could say, real simple, well, David's in the wilderness, Jesus has to be what? In the wilderness. Prophecy, fulfillment. Type, anti-type. Right? Real simple. And we're done. Why did Jesus go in the wilderness? Because David was in the wilderness. And so, David was predicting Jesus, Jesus fulfilling it. But that doesn't really answer, so what? Does that make sense? David is in the wilderness to prove, to demonstrate that he's the right man for and looking forward toward the Davidic covenant. He's the right person for the job. He's the right person. But what happens in the wilderness? David fails all the time. He's not a good guy. He makes lots of, for lack of a better term, mistakes in the wilderness period. Jesus is in the wilderness, and does he fail? No. David, even though the covenant is named after the guy, is not the right person for the covenant. But who is? Jesus. Do you see the so what? Do you see that? Does that make sense to everybody? And there's actually a lot more to this. I mean, it's not just the Davidic covenant. You have to go to Micah, and actually you have to go back to 1 Samuel 24, and all, all these different things. But there's a textual buildup that we have where you start to see it's not just prediction, fulfillment, type, anti-type. If you do that, you've made an artificial connection and the artificial connection shows because you don't know why that connection exists. But if you define the connection, then you understand how to understand the Old Testament correctly and how to understand and how that actually, through the right connections, amplifies the New Testament to answer the significance question or the so what question. Does this make sense? Does this make sense? And does it also make sense that when Paul kind of blanketly 
and rightly labels the entire Old Testament as a teacher, does that start to make sense too? It's not just this book where you read it and then it just gets a bunch of predictions about the New Testament. It's meant to train you. It's meant to instruct you in the, in the theology and in Paul's mind specifically about the need for faith, but in a broader sense, it instructs you about all kinds of theological concepts so that when you get to the New Testament, you're prepared to see the beauty and the glory that is to come. Understand this? So, be careful about this typology thing. Don't just jump on the bandwagon. Because really, that's just a lazy man's way of making a connection way too fast, way too quickly. There is a method to making connections, and it's not just a typological scheme as it's traditionally presented. Okay, final five minutes. Uh, let's talk about the main message of 2 Samuel. Okay, that's, is that at the bottom of your page, I think? Main message of 2 Samuel. Um, here's the main point of 2 Samuel. Main point. <clears throat> In a quick phrase, 2 Samuel is, has been written to establish the nature of the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel has been written to establish the nature of the Davidic covenant. Everything in 2 Samuel is about helping you to understand the way the Davidic covenant functions. And here's how it works. The first part of the Davidic covenant, or the first part of 2 Samuel, demonstrates this that the Davidic covenant is poised to be the ultimate covenant. The first part is that the Davidic covenant is poised to be the ultimate covenant. And that takes a little bit of more definition, but just understand this, that the life of David and all that he's doing and all the contrasts that you're going to start to see and the fact that Saul's dynasty diminishes and David is upheld, all is God's way of showing Israel and the world, this is the man, and the agreement that I make with this guy is what determines the rest of history. Okay? Ultimate covenant. Second, you need to show, no, the middle part of the book shows its definition. Shows its definition. 2 Samuel 7, particularly, demonstrates the definition Right? Not just that this thing is really, really important and it's going to determine all history. What is it? What are the terms? What are the promises? What does it do? What's its potential? Third, not only do you need a demonstration, not only do you need definition, but you also need implementation. Dave, the, the, the rest of the book of 2 Samuel, all the way up to basically chapter 20, is a discussion on how God will use the Davidic covenant to control history. Okay? And that sets up for the final thing, which is actually probably the most important part of the book relative to the big picture. It sets a trajectory. It sets the trajectory of the book. So you have, you need to demonstrate that this is kind of the ultimate covenant. You need it to be defined. You need it thirdly to be implemented. But finally, you need to understand its trajectory, its trajectory. Once you understand how the Davidic covenant initially works, 
you understand the path that 2 Samuel sets up that leads to Messiah. Does that make sense to everybody? I mean, it, it's just like what we commented at the beginning of class, which was, um, you know, oh yeah, I see big picture that this leads to kind of like a divine Messiah and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's true. Um, but you, here's how it kind of moves in that direction. You first have to know that this is the ultimate covenant. Then you need, some, you need it to be defined. Then you need to see how it goes into action. And those actions produce the pathway to the Messiah. Straight shot. I mean, it, Second Samuel could not make it any clearer. Right? And that's how everything is arranged. Okay. Any questions for me? All right. On Tuesday, we will... You don't have anything due... Did I say there was anything due? Okay, it's not due. SPP 2 is not due. Now we're officially behind in this class too. Uh, that was easy. And SPP is not due on Tuesday. Okay, it is not. N-O-T, due. We will be finishing up the introductory section about the background and all that kind of stuff of the Davidic Covenant. Have a good weekend.